0: You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. I have a good word for you today. Uh, is there anybody that needs to be encouraged today? Anybody? Okay. All right. I see you in the back there. All right. I need to be encouraged. Uh, I don't know about you, but I've been in kind of a state of semi Ongoing low-grade fever of confusion lately, because the world is—it's a really difficult place right now. And so, I—I uh, I like to be on Twitter as much as anybody, and I—I I follow all kinds of people on Twitter because I want to know what's going on and I want different perspectives. I want to know what people think, but after a while. I get tired of what people think and I need to hear what the Lord thinks about things. And the truth is, sometimes I don't even like what the Lord has to say to me because what the Lord says to me is the thing I'm ultimately accountable for. And that's what I want to talk to you today about. I want to, I want to talk to you about how to live how to live as, a, as an actual follower of Jesus in this very, very difficult moment that we happen to be in as a nation. So um, let me ask you this question. Have you ever been in a fight with your spouse? Or if you're not married, with your sister or your brother, or your sibling, your friend, coworker? Have you ever been in a fight with somebody or gotten really upset with somebody because that person, and I'm only just thinking of Amy right now, but that person comes to you and they confront you with your bad behavior. They have taken it upon themselves to tell you the truth about how you act and behave. Have you ever experienced the very annoying annoyance of that before in your life. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, on occasion, my wife and I have this back and forth where she comes to me and she says, you know, Andy, you're kind of acting like an idiot right now. Yeah? And, and this is, this is my, my primary reaction every time we have this interaction is it goes like this. You are reporting fake news to me right now. That report is part of a deep state conspiracy because you want to have some kind of a control over me. And so I put all of my resources into arguing against everything that she just said to me because I know that I know that I am absolutely positively correct in my position that I am not an idiot. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? But here's what I'm learning, is that it is possible for me to be wrong. And so what, I, what I'm going to be talking about today is that I want us to take a look at the Bible and how what the Bible shows us about being a person who receives the truth, the difficult truth, the hard truth, when it comes to us as individuals, all right? Because um, for the most part, my basic assumption in life is that generally I'm fine, I've done nothing wrong, and my, self, my default setting is one of defensive self-justification. That's generally how I operate. I don't know about you, but... My observation of the human race is that most people tend towards being like this. All right. Nod your head in agreement with me if you know what I'm talking about. All right. So so I have to ask myself this question. Why is it so hard for me to admit when I am wrong? Why do I have such an inability to hear what someone is telling me when they tell me that I have done them wrong? Why is defensiveness and self-justification usually my first response when I am confronted with the reality of the wrong that I have done? So today, I'm going to tell you a story out of Luke uh, 19, but I want to start and give you context out of a story in Luke 18. If you've got your Bible or your phone app, you can get them open to the book of Luke. Okay? Okay. And, and both of these passages are familiar, but I want to take a different look at them today. So you know this, this story from Luke 18. It's It's the story of the rich young man who comes to Jesus with this question. And the question goes like this. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says this. He says, look, man, if you want to go to heaven someday, if you want to enter into the kingdom of God, if you want to be saved, then do what the law says. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't give false testimony and honor your father and your mother. And to which the young man, he gets really excited. He goes, great. I've done all of those things since I was, i I mean, No, I haven't murdered and lied ever since I was a boy. I have obeyed all of those commands since I was a boy. And I would like to point out to you for just a moment that Jesus's answer to the question, what must I do to have eternal life was not ask me into your heart. He didn't show up and say, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus say, oh, here's what you have to do. Say the sinner's prayer and ask me into your heart. He said, no, do what the law says and you will be saved. That's what the New Testament says. All right. So Jesus is working on his big wind up here. He's he's winding us up. And the and the author Luke is taking us somewhere. So when Jesus hears the young man answer that he's done all these things, he says, well, here's the thing, man, there's still one thing that you lack. Sell everything that you have and give to the poor and then come follow me. And the scripture goes on to say that when the young man heard this, he became very sad and Jesus looked at him and in front of all these people, he said, wow, It is so hard for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. It is so hard for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. The entryway for that man into the kingdom of God was to give up all his money, to give that money to the poor, and to follow after Jesus. And the the young man couldn't do it. He had invested everything. He had all of his hope, all of his stock in that thing. So really what he was hoping Jesus would say to him was, well, all you have to do is ask me into your heart. But he didn't say that. He said, what you need to do is you need to be set free from your love of money because it's your love of money that's afflicting you and it's keeping you from the good life of following me. It's keeping you from the kingdom of God. So we can see ourselves in this person of the rich young ruler, because here was a person who was confronted with the truth about himself and he balked. He didn't really argue the way I would have, but he didn't respond in the direction of God's kingdom. He played it safe He doubled down on the convenient ease of his fat bank account. He was being invited into the good life with Jesus, but he decided to not follow the Lord so that he could keep his money and protect his investments. But the thing is this, that dude was locked in a prison. He was locked in a lie. He was locked in a lie that his money could actually do something for him that would actually satisfy him. And the, and, and the man, Jesus Christ, came to him with the key. And he said, man, if you really want the good life, get rid of that false God, that false thing, hope of money, and come after me. He was exposing where that man's heart was. And the dude couldn't take it. And so what's so interesting about this story about the rich young ruler was that there was this group of people who were around Jesus when all this was going on. And they're they doing the math and they rightfully conclude this. They say, dang, if this guy can't get saved, who then can be saved? And Jesus is setting us up for this next story that I'm about to tell you. Because this story looks really bad. What's happening in this story is like, We're left with despair. Here's a man who walks away from the Lord. He walks away from all of the goodness of the kingdom. But Jesus kind of like nonchalantly says, well, with man, this is impossible. But with God, this is possible. And those people didn't know that they were getting set up for the answer to the question. But Jesus has great comedic timing So we may not be as wealthy as the rich young ruler, but the question for us is still this. When we are confronted with the truth about ourselves, why does it feel impossible for us to give up our reality for the reality that God is presenting to us? Why is it so hard? Why do we dig in On whatever narrative that we are currently holding to, what security do we get from the thing that we're holding onto internally when somebody comes or Jesus comes to us and says, man, that's all great. But if you want to come over into the kingdom of God, if you want to inherit eternal life, if you want to enact the kingdom where you live right now, this is how you do it. Why do we double down? On the thing, the lie that we hold on to on the inside of us. So I want to read a familiar passage to you out of Luke 19. You know this well if you've been in church any amount of time. You've known this if you went to Sunday school. It's the story of Zacchaeus, but I think it's worth reading again. Um, It goes like this. Chapter 19. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but being a short man, he could not because of the crowd. So he ran ahead, and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and he welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter. Jesus has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus, he stood up and he said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of all my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And Jesus said to him, Today, today, salvation has come into this house because this man is also a son of Abraham. For I, the son of man, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. So from the words of Jesus right there, we can see that Zacchaeus at one time in his life and definitely at the beginning of the story was determined as somebody who was lost and Jesus went to go find him. How is lostness defined according to the literal story that we just read? Well, we know this. He was a chief tax collector, which isn't inherently lost, but, you know, it, it's it's a job that has its own set of problems. So he was wealthy. And if we listen to the mutterings of the people, he was a sinner. Okay. And we... And we can conclude from the story that he amassed wealth by cheating people. He amassed wealth by cheating individuals and he amassed wealth by cheating his community. So he tells, Zacchaeus tells us himself that he has grown wealthy and that he's neglected the poor. And the story implies that his wealth is grown because he has cheated people out of their money He has stolen from his own people in order to benefit himself. He has acted in his best interest rather than in the best interest of others. He has saved himself at the expense of the lostness of his community. So he was an individual, he was looking out for himself, he was amassing money unto himself at the expense of the people that he was living among. Can you imagine a lonelier person than that? He was fully excluded from everybody because he was cheating them and robbing them blind. I mean, he may have had wealth, he may have... Enjoyed the finer things of life. But what is the finer things in life if you can't live in community with other people? If you can't be around other people? I mean, Zacchaeus was wealthy, but he was afflicted with loneliness because the God that he served was money. And that God said to him that he had to steal and cheat And lie at the expense of the community that he lived in. It was his actions that brought separation between him and his people. But here's the thing about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was confronted with the truth about himself. The same way that the rich young ruler was. But his reaction was totally different. The rich Zacchaeus, he didn't attempt to justify himself. When the Lord came to him, Zacchaeus saw his love of money. He saw his love of power. He saw his willingness to steal from his people. He saw his willingness to lie. And we don't know exactly what Jesus said to him. We don't don't know exactly what Zacchaeus saw Jesus do. But Jesus doesn't come into our midst without confrontation. Everywhere Jesus goes, there's some kind of critique going on. You don't get to encounter the living Lord and not feel some critique on the life that you're leading because the life that Jesus is living is so different from the life that we are mostly leading. So when he comes into our midst, something happens. We are confronted with the truth about ourself and some of us turn away sadly like the rich young ruler or we can do what Zacchaeus did and own the truth about the thing that we're in, the sin that we're in and we can make things right. Amen. I hope somebody's getting this this morning. So, this is just incredible. When the Lord comes to Zacchaeus, he sees all these things about himself, and he doesn't sense that he's supposed to protect any of his assets. But he's only supposed to surrender them all and give them away because he sees them now as the liabilities that they are in his life. And that that's the thing that happens next is that he publicly admits his sin and then he publicly says he's going to make restitution to the people that he's stolen from. And that seems like an impossible outcome. In the story of Zacchaeus, we are witnessing the thing that is possible for God. When a person person is confronted by the Lord and they own the truth of what the Lord is saying to them and they make an actual change in their life, when they don't just repent in word, but they repent in deed, then that person goes from being lost to being found that 's where the kingdom of God is manifested into the earth. the setup and the tension and the story that 's left unresolved in the rich young ruler is fully concluded for us in the story of zacchaeus it 's a prophetic parable for us today. It is a word for us that in the midst of this great great shaking of our nation's systems in the midst of great feelings of insecurity in the onslaught of trouble and shifting that in all of the heat of this moment, Jesus is coming to us and he is showing us how he's showing us how to enter into his kingdom right now. And so here I want to give you some practical ways. You know, we can talk so much in the, the abstract, but I want to give you some actual concrete ways to do this in your own life. So when the truth comes to you about your life, own the truth. Own the truth about yourself. Listen. Listen when somebody's talking to you. I can't say this enough, that, that most of the relational ground, the positive relational ground that I've gotten in my most important relationships, I've gained because I stopped my mouth. I stopped talking. I stopped justifying myself with words. And I, I positioned myself to listen to what the other person had to say. I mean, that sounds like crazy talk. It, se- it seems so obvious. But I think that the biggest part of buying the truth and selling it not happens when we close our mouth and we open our, our ears to hear what another person has to say to us. And where, where there are wounds that we've created, that we begin to try to heal those Wounds. where we begin to actively make repairs and amends, make amends in relationships where we have injured others. And I don't know about you, but I'm thinking of a lot about community and cities. I, I'm thinking about a lot about the way cities operate, about the way Christians are supposed to engage with the city that they live in about the way churches are supposed to engage with the city that they live in. And sometimes I get overwhelmed with the amounts of work that that takes. But I do know this, that there are relationships that I have in my everyday life, some more personal than others, but I have many relationships where I know that I have probably inflicted pain on somebody somewhere along the way and that my job as a Christian is to figure out how to heal those wounds, how to take actual practical steps into to healing people that I've hurt. So I want, to, I want to conclude this message today with this question. How is it that Zacchaeus was lost and then he was found? Zacchaeus saw the things that he had done wrong and then he made amends and that's it. It's literally as simple as that according to this New Testament, Testament text. Zacchaeus had seen what he had done wrong and he made amends. He had caused great hurt and great pain to people. He was the wounder. But by the end of this story, the chief tax collector became the healer. He moved from the person who created the injury to the person who created the healing. And child of God, that is our pathway. That is our pathway. That is our journey. That is the, that is our labor as, as people of God, as Christians that are living in this city. The calling that the spirit is beckoning us into is becoming a people that move from people who are maybe, it's not true of everybody, but I know this is true of me, creating injury in some places. And we need to get better at not doing that and bringing healing to as many places as we can. So Zacchaeus brought healing into his community and then Jesus pronounced his pronouncement, today salvation has come to this house. This man was lost and now he is found and he is the one that I came to seek and save. And that remains true for you and I today. And I wanna leave you with this, that in order to do what I'm talking about, Your proximity to Jesus is everything. It starts with your proximity to Jesus, but it cannot end there because here's why. The rich rich young ruler, he had proximity to Jesus just like Zacchaeus did. So you start with proximity to Jesus. You have to get all of your nourishment. You have to get all of your grace, all of your mercy, all of the truth that you need in your life by being close and proximate to Jesus, but it can't stop there. You can't for one second think that that is enough. There has to be actions that follow that proximity. We need Jesus. We need him more and more. You can never have enough of him. Our lives are depending on it. Our communities' lives are depending on it. Our city's life is depending on it. And our communities are depending on us living out the actual concrete virtues of the kingdom of God that make the kingdom of God so compelling. This is our labor, y'all. This is our work. This is what we are called to do. There is a struggle to struggle against. There is a kingdom of darkness that is trying to, kill a whole bunch of people. And the church, you and I as individuals are meant to be salt and light in this moment. Amen? All right, I've preached over my time. Let's, let's stand up together and I'll pray us out. Listen, I know we're having abbreviated church services, but I really do believe this. I believe that God is working as powerfully now in our lives than than ever before. I mean, three months of quarantine, then all of the race stuff that's gone on over the last two or three weeks, the world is just a heated mess right now. And I've had some conversations with some friends who have been um, struggling with a pervading sense of hopelessness. Like like, there's this insidious hopelessness that is trying to affect the body of Christ right now, much less the world, okay? I wanna tell you this. This is what I actually believe. I'm not just blowing smoke. I literally believe this, that in all of this shaking, Jesus is right there with us. And everything that seems totally chaotic and unplanned the Lord is going to redeem totally and surely. And I actually believe that the devil has absolutely overplayed his hand. And this is going to be the, the, the things that are coming out of this. I, I hate to use the word revival because I don't just mean people getting saved. I mean actual communities being transformed. I mean, whole people groups being saved, healed, delivered, and communities being totally transformed and the church not being segregated anymore, but one church, black and white, brown, yellow together. I do believe this, that the spirit of God is leading us into those places. And we want to be the healers that are partaking in that, not resisting what the Lord wants to do. So I I, I say that to you, that there will be hard days ahead and you will find yourself in difficult moments ahead, but, but stay soft, stay humble, stay merciful, stay gentle. Don't justify yourself quickly. Have listening ears. Pray to the Lord for wisdom and guidance because wisdom is actually available. Wisdom is available. All right, so that's what I'll close us out with today. Jesus, you say in the book of James that you give grace and wisdom to all who ask for it. And we believe that you're a God who answers prayer, and so that is our prayer today, God. Lord, make our feet feet of peace that are carrying the the good news of your kingdom to every part of our city, every school, every place of business, everywhere we go. Let your gospel of peace be upon our feet. Lord, take our hands and let the healing balm just be in our hands. Lord, cause us to have conversations with people we wouldn't normally talk with. Lord, give us arms that are reaching out. And Jesus, give us wisdom. Give us the wisdom of heaven that we need in this hour. We are truly counting on you for it, Lord. We're counting on you for wisdom, Lord. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Have a great week. Go out to lunch with somebody. Don't hug anybody in here, but go out onto the lawn and hug everybody that you want. If they give you permission, we will be back here. Same time next week, two services. Make sure you sign up for church so we know that you're coming. Have a great week. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.